Okay, if you have a Bible with you, uh, would you like to turn to Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to look at just a couple, of, well, a few verses from Ephesians uh, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, and you can follow the, the, the passage that we look at on the screen above the stage, you can read it there. We've been in this season as a church, this term anyway, uh, looking at uh, kind of our fundamental vision really as a church and, and therefore looking to the New Testament uh, to remind us, to show us uh, well, what it means to be a church, full stop. We looked at lots of different uh, themes or topics, convictions if you like, and uh, on Wednesday this week we when we gathered downstairs for our vision night, we considered or began to consider what it means to be the family of God. And we're going to carry that on in a, in a variety of ways. And today we're going to consider what it means to be a united family, or perhaps we should say a united people. Or we could even say a united kingdom. Um, and to look at that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to 6. So Paul writes... As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's just pray for a moment. Father God, we, we do thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together, knowing you amongst us as we worship. Lord, we want to glorify your name. We want to lift your name up. Father, we pray right now, Lord, that you would uh, presence yourself amongst us, especially as we look at your word as well. Would you, would you open our eyes? Would you illuminate your word? Lord, would you help me with the words that I use? Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, you would draw us to the response you want to kind of blossom in our hearts, the, the, the immediate response and the ongoing response, Lord, for, for how our lives should be shaped, how our lives corporately as a church should be shaped, how our lives personally, individually, throughout Life should take shape uh, from your word by faith. We want to receive what you have to say to us today. We want to uh, encourage one another. Lord, we want to walk with you, as this passage says. We want to live a life that's worthy of you. We want to walk with you. We want to go somewhere, Lord. We want to make sure that that somewhere is the place that you're leading us. Not just of our own fancy and our own making, but your desire, your plan, your purpose, your will being done, Lord, as it is in heaven, letting it be done here on the earth, Lord Jesus. We, we ask you, come and shape us, come and move amongst us, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at vision, we've both been considering, when we consider the church, who are we and where are, are we heading? And here we're looking at this great subject of being God's united people, God's United Kingdom, putting it in that way straight away kind of highlights uh, that we're in a time of great disunity, of great dysfunction. Uh, in this nation especially, we see how sin uh, separates, not only does sin separate us from God, but sin 
separates people from one another. Human groups uh, fracture and splinter. That can happen at the level of a family. Uh, that can happen at the level of a nation as well. We, we see it. It's it particularly become manifest by uh, a, a vote uh, that took place a couple of years ago now as to whether to, to remain in the EU or to leave the EU. And really, see, we saw then in that vote and in, in the months that have passed by, kind of a fracture, a, a breaking up of every level of society. It's uh, the young and the old, they're separate, voting in different ways, with a different vision of the future. Uh, there would be different areas of the nation, just fractured. Sometimes that can be presented uh, uh, as north versus south or just in other ways. Uh, different, uh, different areas of the country, different people from different backgrounds, just fracturing, splintering. Sometimes it can be experienced uh, in, in the workplace. Uh, sin separates and therefore there can become this separation between uh, managers and workers. There can be hostility. There can be suspicion. We can draw hard lines. Uh, conversation in the staff room can all be about us, whoever we define us to be, and, and them, this other group. Maybe if only they just pull up their socks and do more work, or if only they make better decisions and, and, and organize a company or an organization in a, in a better way. There can be disunity, disruption, disharmony, Everywhere it can be in it can be in schools uh, as well. Teachers can be an us or a them, and there are pupils as well. Or perhaps even just within the dynamic of your particular class, you know. After a while, people form into different groups. It's no bad thing to have different friendship groups, but they they form, they separate, they start to insult one another. People are just looking for security, but they do so in in finding a group finding a niche, finding a place of belonging, but that creates a hostility with another group. We're not them. We don't like them. We don't trust them. Uh, we can see it in all sorts of ways. Here, in the letter to uh, the Ephesians, and in, in, this ch- well, in the first three chapters, and now landing at the beginning of chapter 4, we're seeing here a vision uh, for God's plan to do something very different. To create a very different kind of community. Uh, a, a community, a church that's going to display the, the excellence of God. It's going to display what God can do all around. There could be the, the evidence of, of fear and anger and hostility and a complete lack of peace. But God, God's desire is to point at the church and say, look, here's something profoundly different. Here's a group of people who are profoundly different. We see in chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes there, speaking of God, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So his intent was to be able to point to spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and say, look, look what I'm doing in my church. Look how different she is. Look how the church of God demonstrates my wisdom. The Lord says, and the Lord's wisdom is worked out in Christ 
and in Christ seeking to bring people from different, maybe even polar opposite, but different communities, bring them together and make them one in a community that reflects his wonderful love. Well, we see that through, uh, through chapter 2 in a number of places. Chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Paul is writing there this fundamental uh, joining together of two groups who are completely opposed, the Jewish community and the Gentiles. He said, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace uh, to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So Paul is writing about something that's utterly profound, utterly wonderful that God is doing in bringing people together in this gospel. That's the vision. That's what makes Paul tick. That's what he's laying his life down for, that God might be glorified in a people who are united. And so as we consider that and what it means to be a united family or a united kingdom, we need to see first of all Well, where does this unity come from? We'll look at how it works out. But first of all, where does it come from? Well, it comes from from God. And it comes from what God is like. It's so tempting in considering any topic, any subject, any issue, any problem, any vision. It's so easy for us to start with ourselves, start with our preferences, start with what what we would like start with our, our wants and our ideas, but we need to start with God. We need to start with God, and we need to start with what God is like. You see, God is united. One Lord, one God, three persons, and we see that here in this passage, where Paul writes in verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the ultimate reason for unity. It's, it's, it's in God. It's what God is like. You've noticed that in, that in those verses that I've just read, the word one keeps cropping up. How many times does it crop up? Seven. Se- seven times. He's emphasizing oneness. Now that is to do with us being one body and being called to one hope and living one faith and and experiencing one baptism and so on. But if you look through it as well, you'll see a reference each time to a different member of the Trinity. There's one Spirit, there's one Lord, one God and Father of us all. And then straight away we're we are peering into the most glorious mystery of all. It's true to say we have one God, but that we know him to be in three persons, united, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together, 
active, working, harmonious, honoring one another, glorifying one another, and working together. We, we're so used to things breaking down. We're so used to, in our experience, difficulties, a lack of peace, a lack of unity, where harmony goes wrong, where people don't honor one another. We, we, we could be in the realm of church, and we could be familiar with either through direct experience or, or rumors and stories of how churches split. There were some leaders, they were working together, they were kind of pulling their weight, but at a certain point it was realized really they weren't getting on that well, and the way that they resolved that was to each go and do their own thing. There's a, there's a split. Uh, or sometimes it might be an awareness of, of strife that's in family life. Uh, a couple that aren't getting on brilliantly well, let's have another child and, and that will help us somehow. Help, maybe that way we'll be able to unite. Or a family that breaks down entirely. We're so used to that in our experience that sometimes we can then project that onto God. We might be sort of looking for a sinister side. We might assume ulterior motives just because that's what we experience in human relationships. But what we see in God is perfect unity, perfect harmony, where each person is honoring one another and they're working together. And we see that revealed in Jesus and how Jesus speaks of the Father and how Jesus speaks of the Spirit. There's no, there's no hint of separation. There's no hint of, uh, of disagreement, of just trying to get along, as it were, but having a different agenda. No, they're completely together. They're completely united. In John chapter 5. And verse 18, we read there that the, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things uh, than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those he is pleased to give it. So we see there in, in Jesus understanding his relationship with the Father, there's no separation there. To, they are working together. Jesus says, I do what I see the Father doing. He's, he's not just taking his own initiative, running on ahead of a reluctant Father who's inactive and has got left behind. And later on, speaking of the Spirit, in chapter 16. And verse 5, Jesus says there in John chapter 16, verse 5, Now, I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in, re in regard to sin and righteousness in, uh, and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father when you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. 
So Jesus, knowing that his hour is soon to come, where he's lifted up, he's glorified, he's crucified for us, and he's going to die, be resurrected, and ascend to heaven. He says, you're full of grief now, but unless I go, I can't send the counselor. It's better that I go. You see how Jesus is honoring the work of the Spirit. This other counselor will come. It's better that I go so that you receive the ministry of the Spirit. There is, there is an honoring. There is a celebrating um, amongst the Godhead. So this, we see a profound unity amongst them. And so we, we might ask again, well, where does this unity come from? It comes from what God is like. And it also comes from what God has done. Back in Ephesians 4, it speaks there of the, the unity of the Spirit. You see, unity is, is what God's like. It's also God's achievement. God creates unity amongst his people. God achieves it. Well, we, we saw that earlier on. That he himself, our peace, has made the two one. He's done it. He's destroyed the, uh, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's created a new unity. He's, he's the one who's spoken to those who are far away. And he's spoken to those who are near. And he's brought them together to experience the peace of God. That's what he's done. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 is a celebration of what God has done in the gospel. What he has uh, achieved. And you think about who's even writing the letter. You think it's Paul who once despised Gentiles and persecuted the church. And now he's, he's here, just infusing, delighted with the fact that God is bringing Jew and Gentile together. And now he's delighted to see God building his church and to play his part in that as well. So a, a unity that comes from what God has done. It's not something, in other words, that we create. And again, we're so prone to think, what must... What must we do? What's, uh, we can put ourselves first, not just our preferences and our wants, but what we think should happen. And then we think that perhaps unity is something that we create uh, by virtue of what we do. Perhaps we need to uh, rally people to a project. We need to rally people to an activity. People are all doing their own thing. They've got different ideas. If only we could get them to behave as one. I know, let's, let's start a new program. Let's start a new initiative. Let's do something together. That will unite people. That will draw people together. And in some respects, it can be successful. One of the most profound examples of unity in the Bible is actually this, this man-made variety of people deciding, we'll club together, we'll make it happen, we've got an idea, we've got a project, come on everyone, join in. And you can turn back to, uh, well, let's, let's go there in fact, uh, Genesis chapter 11. I say that slightly with my tongue in my cheek, it's a great example of unity, obviously it's not, but uh, we, we see in, in, in Genesis chapter 11, now the whole world had one language and a common speech, and men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And they succeeded in that plan. They, they gathered together together. Uh, they had an agreed strategy. They had an agreed building project. 
They all had one language and, uh, and one intention to make a city. And notice that, that it's to make a name for ourselves. It's actually all rooted in fear rather than faith. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were looking to establish their own security. And they were looking to do that without any kind of reference uh, to God at all. In fact, the whole thing is in opposition to God. And so what does God do? God comes and frustrates their unity. God scatters them. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. They will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them uh, from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. So in, in one sense, impressive unity. They could really gather. They could really work together. But it's in opposition to God. Their focus is just on themselves. And actually, God breaks it up. That's a negative example um, where, of what can happen if we just focus on ourselves. And perhaps we would not be in danger of going down that line. But we can be in danger of just thinking... Of we want to make a name for ourselves. As a church, maybe we'd like our name to be better known as a kind of a bit of a brand, uh, a bit of a tower, really, really prominent, obvious that everyone can see and admire. And then we'll have this security, and and we'll kind of make a name for ourselves. And you can see that even in a spiritual context, that something ugly starts to happen. That's not the that's not the aim of being a church together, of of celebrating ourselves of just rallying to an activity or a program. No, it's something far more profound that honors him. We see then in Scripture as well, actually what what unity looks like, which is profoundly Godward. A unity that God creates by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in, in the early chapters of Acts. Jesus has ascended to heaven and he's told his disciples wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And and even at that point, there's a profound unity uh, among them. We see that in in chapter 1, where they gather together. It says in in chapter 1 of Acts and verse 14, about a group that's, that's probably 120 or so, men and women, it says they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, with his brothers. And so whilst they're waiting, this, this unity is beginning to emerge. If you read the Gospels, you know that often the disciples were not the greatest model of unity. They all kind of followed Jesus. They all wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to relate with him. They were prepared to listen to him. But actually with each other, there was often uh, arguments, uh, squabbling, infighting, different ideas, there's all that competitive angst. Well, it's all gone now. They've, 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 they're gathering together constantly in prayer, and then it's in that context that we get to the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And I know we've, can, uh, we've looked at that a little bit on other occasions. 
It's just to notice what God is doing, which is so profound. The people who are united are people who are praying constantly, where the, all that previous angst and sense of competition amongst a group of disciples who are often jostling for position, wanting one up on, on each other, wanting the best seats, wanting the most honor, worried and fearful lest they should drop down the pecking order and be less significant somehow. All of that, all of that competitive edge has gone. And there are people united in prayer, united in God's purpose, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Now you can think to start with a group of mainly uh, Galileans. They're from a particular part of, of Israel. And we can so often focus on the, the, the aspect of the, uh, of, of the gift of tongues emerging, but if you see the fruits of it, suddenly all these people are hearing the praises of God in these different languages. That's what grabs people's attention. We're told in, in verse 7, they were utterly amazed. They asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism, uh, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And so remember, on that day, yes, people from the Jewish community, but they'd all gathered for this massive festival. But this is what they're hearing. They're hearing the praise of God in their own language. Fast forward past Peter's speech, and many of them will be, uh, become believers in Jesus, get baptized, and be added to that group. It's another, again, another profound image of unity. God starting with this small group and then 3,000 people from all over the world are added in. And they all share a Jewish uh, heritage, but if you like, there's, there's, there's still different culture and language groups amongst them, but they're all added in and they become one. It's profound what God does. It's this spiritual unity that emerges where everyone can find their place in this new family, this new people, this new community that's emerging with a, with a spiritual unity between them. It's not that they have all rallied to a cause. It's that faith has come to life in their hearts and they're drawn together by what God has done in them. It says here in Ephesians the, about the bond of peace. Here's people who previously were living hundreds or maybe even thousands of miles away from each other, and now they're part of the same thing, part of the same group with this bond of peace between them. That's what God does, which can't be seen. It's not visible. It's not just by having like a, a, a badge on a lanyard we are all part of the same thing because we've all got this badge. Not necessarily a visible symbol, but a spiritual reality in their hearts. In a, a one new family, their differences aren't stamped out, but there's this bond between them. I, don't, I wonder if you've ever had that experience of just meeting another believer. You don't know them 
profoundly well. You may have only spoken for a few minutes. You're from very different cultural backgrounds. But you know, actually, yeah, we share so much. And so God's people, God's church, a united people of men and women, Jew and Gentile, young and old. If we consider it in terms of temperament, extrovert, introvert, thinkers, feelers. In terms of culture, we might consider east and west. Nationally, we might consider north and south. All joined together in the unity that God does, which is his achievement by his work in the Holy Spirit drawing us to faith and uniting us to Christ. A profound unity from God. I mean, so, well, if it's, his, if, it's his, if it's his achievement then, that's great. What, what part do we have to play? You might think, well, if it's, if it's all God's work, that's wonderful. It's all achieved then. And we, we can sit back. Well, no, it's, this is who we are and it's where we're heading. It's what God has done that then draws us into our, our part to play. And what's our part to play? It says here, back in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Note that we don't make the unity of the Spirit. We don't create the unity of the Spirit, but we're given this responsibility. Make every effort to keep it. And it's, again, it's profound. It's not just, well... Give it a go, make an attempt, have a stab at it. You probably won't succeed, but at least show some, some attempt uh, to try, at least. No, it's a, it's a profound call. Make every effort in all situations. Be totally diligent. Use your effort and your energy to, to guard and preserve, maintain and display this wonderful unity that God has established. It's an amazing vision. Notice how it just it comes down to some really quite, they can just sound quite basic and earthy things. An amazing vision. And there's a few things that we're encouraged to do. I'm just going to give three before we, uh, before we wrap up, or under three headings. This amazing vision of God's glory revealed in his church means Paul's first encouragement specifically is be completely humble and gentle. Wow! Look at what God's done. Look at God's plan for the church on planet Earth. How shall we live that out? Be completely humble and gentle. In, in other words, in, in every situation... Think of yourself with lowliness. Think low of yourself rather than high. Get that as well in, the, in Romans chapter 12. In verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Think of, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Think, of, think for a moment, considering the Old Testament and the New Testament, who do you think is the, who's, who do you think is the most anointed and godly leader? 
in the Old Testament? Moses? Yeah. Who do you think is the most godly and anointed leader in the New Testament? Who do you think that might be? Hey, easy one, that. It says in both, they're the most humble people. That's what it says of Moses. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 said of himself, come to me all you who are weary. He says of himself, I am completely humble and gentle. That's what Jesus says of himself. God's son, completely humble and gentle. We're called to be like Jesus. And Jesus was completely humble and gentle. He didn't think of himself too highly when he had every, when he had every reason to. He was a humble man. Not thinking of his high position as a reason for demanding that other people do the menial stuff. So what happened in John 13, the, the Last Supper? What did Jesus do, knowing who he was? This last meal together with this group of disciples, his hour is about to come when he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to have this sleepless night. He knows he's going to be arrested because he's betrayed. He knows he's going to be falsely accused. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to take the sin of the world on himself, in himself, and experience the wrath of God on the cross. He knows that's the way. He knows God's plan. And knowing all of that, he's got this last moment with his disciples having this meal. (coughs) And what did Jesus do at that time? But get down from the table, dress himself as a servant, and then bend down and start washing his disciples' feet. And then he didn't tick them off. He didn't get up, take off the apron, sit back down. So now why, why couldn't you have done that? Why, I shouldn't have to. Knowing what's going on in my life right now, goodness me, who do you think you are? No, it, it wasn't that. It's, as I've done to you, so you should do for one another. I'm, I'm giving, this, is, this is what the kingdom looks like. You can't have a united kingdom if there's no humility. We can't build a church on pride and self-promotion and personal preference and jostling for position. That's how we keep unity with being humble, by being, by being gentle. When is gentleness ever celebrated? Be soft. That doesn't sound likely, does it? We're always encouraged to kind of like get ahead of the competition, outperform other people, get above others, make much of ourselves. And here, in gentleness and humility, it works completely Differently. So, number one, be completely humble and gentle all the time amongst all people. Secondly, we're told about being patient and bearing with one another. This, again, this profound vision. And what, what's Paul's first instructions to the church? In view of this awesome vision for God's church in planet Earth, 
Be completely humble and gentle and be patient, bearing with one another. How do we keep unity? What do we want to display to the world at a time when it's completely fractured and disunited? Patience and bearing with others. There can be as an old-fashioned word describes patience as long-suffering. Suffer for a long time. Be willing to hold yourself in control rather than losing control with, a, with an angry flare-up. Hold yourself. Be, be patient. Put up with. Bear with other people. You don't have to be part of a church for very long to realize that probably is worth pointing out first of all. Bear with your brothers and sisters. Endure. Don't retaliate. If you haven't experienced the need to bear with someone, you probably will today or tomorrow. And the the temptation is, I shouldn't have to put up. I shouldn't have to put up with this. I shouldn't have to put up with how they just were. I shouldn't just. I shouldn't have to put up with how they just spoke to me. I shouldn't have to put up with anything. And it's convenient then just to entertain disunited thoughts. Well, we won't quite be together. Maybe I could go be part of a different congregation. I would not have to put up with them. Oh, great news. There's a new congregation starting. I can kind of, I can move aside. We shouldn't have to dodge that. We've got a, a, a spiritual duty. There's an expectation here. Bear with. Endure other people. And that means actually trying to understand, trying to understand them. It's not a case of excusing sin or pretending that something didn't hurt. It's not putting on a pretense like that. But actually, if you have been hurt, it's trying to work out what, what might possibly be going on for the other person. Where might they possibly be coming from? Well, they're not coming from a perfect place, but then neither are, neither are we, neither are you. There can be a temptation always to locate who's right and who's wrong. And we'll all try and do our best to locate the other person in the wrong and to justify ourselves. And maybe sometimes that might be right. But even that doesn't justify losing our temper or having a go. And in some cases... Perhaps we aren't, so it's not a good idea even to press the point. Oh, I don't know what to do in this situation. I, try, I need to kind of work out, were they in the wrong or was I in the wrong? Either or. Hard and fast. Life's often a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Was I completely humble and gentle? Possibly not. Were they completely humble and gentle? I'm not sure. Sometimes it's just a case of recognizing difference. Different personalities, different temperaments. I think when we get to glory, all differences won't disappear. We won't all become exactly the same, exactly alike. It'll be true to say that we are all uh, resembling Jesus. We're, We're all like him. But I don't think necessarily our differences will disappear. It's just that our sin will disappear. And when sin disappearing, then we'll celebrate our differences rather than be irritated by them. 
For now, sometimes as we rub shoulders with each other, we can become irritated. We, well, perhaps if, if I'm having to put up with a lot of people, or if you're having to put up with a lot of people, that might mean that a lot of people are having to put up with me, or that a lot of people are having to put up with you. And we need the, the humility to recognize there might be things I've done that's damaged that unity. And, and then seek to properly move on and, and reconcile. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. And do that, thirdly, in love. A united kingdom a united family, a glorious church is a people who love. Loving God, loving one another, loving friends, loving strangers, loving those that we are similar to, loving those that are different from us. Summed up in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7, where we're told, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So when we see this glorious vision of a New Testament church. We want to follow in the footsteps. Well, it comes there. That's, that's our part to play, our, our commitment. Now, don't be surprised then if God gives you or God gives us opportunities to learn patience. Opportunities to persevere. Why? Because it's what he wants to cultivate. These are the things that are going to demonstrate to a watching world and other spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. These are the things that are going to demonstrate the profound work of God. We kind of rejoice in what Jesus has done. And then that's the direction that we're traveling in. Lord, I want to walk in a way that's worthy of this calling that you've given us. I want to learn step by step patience. I want to learn step by step humility. I want to learn step by step bearing with others. I want to learn how to celebrate other people's strengths, our differences. When the world sees that, I think it will have a profound, a profound impact. At a time when everything seems to be breaking and fracturing, I want the world to see God's good news lived out in a united people. Shall we pray? I reckon.